Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Northwestern People Podcast. I'm your host, Hank Yang. And today we have a very special guest on, uh, which is Professor Gary Saul Morrison. Um, he is a professor in the Department of Slavic Languages, and he has been working here for 17 years, and he has <coughs> published numerous books and monographs and edited many more in addition to many other articles, mostly focusing on Russian literature for the most part. Except I've been here for 35 years. Oh, 35 <laughs> years, never mind. So is the 17 years thing something else? I don't know what that is. Oh, the residential college master. The residential college. Okay, but you've been working here for 35 years. And you've been educated at Oxford and Yale with a PhD in Yale in 1974. Right, which is that's, a long that's all right. Mm-hmm. So, um, so could you tell me a little bit about the class that you teach here and why you think it's important as like a subject for students to learn nowadays? Well, the class is on two great Russian novels, two of the greatest novels ever written. And the the class is basically there to have students appreciate that why great literature is worth reading, how it can affect their life, and to inspire them to read more. That's the only thing that makes it important. It will open up a world for them to understand other people and hopefully enrich their lives and make them more empathetic with other people by empathizing with characters and novels. And then want to go out and read more. And that's if when students say, oh, uh, tell me what else to read next, then I know I've done my job. It's not about mastering a certain body of material. Mm -hmm. Unlike, let's say, your microeconomics or orgo. It's not about mastering a certain material. So the two books that we read in class were um, Brothers Karamazov and Anna Karenina. Mm -hmm. And what makes you think that these are like the greatest novels that are ever written in human history? Well, it's not me. It's sort of a general consensus around the world. Um, And if you read enough novels, you'll see that they are... Nobody has understood how the mind works the dynamics of consciousness, the relation of the mind to the body, the complexity of the process of thinking, the way Tolstoy has. Um, I mean, there's already proof of that. If some great psychologist had understood people as well as Tolstoy, they could have produced a portrait of a person as believable as Anna Karenina, but no one's Mm -hmm. come even remotely. But the great novelists understood people better than the great psychologists. Mm-hmm. Um, Dostoevsky's psychology um, is much more about <clears throat> depths rather than consciousness, although he deals with both. It's a kind of different take on things. He's more interested in the perverse and the, sor- <clears throat> the sources of evil. Tolstoy does that, but it's not his main focus. Um, and for anyone you know, interested in the questions they address, these are philosophical novels. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> what is the nature of evil? What's the <clears throat> what's the best way to live? What how where one gets one's sense of right and wrong? If one's view is scientific, where there is no sense of right and wrong, which causing effect. Um, the nature of love, the complexity of moral decisions that we have to face. Mm-hmm. All these are, you know, everyone faces these questions. Um, and these are the most profound works. Um, ever to address them, so it's a good place to go to, to think about it. Mm-hmm. So both 
Tolstoy and Dostoevsky are sort of approaching at this end goal, sort of like an enlightenment stage, like Levin sort of enters that at the end of Anna Karenina. Um, what do you think about, like, even with just religion in general, with the attainment of, like, a spiritual enlightenment? And is it what possible? Do you, what do these authors think? Mm-hmm. And what do you think well, as I never, well? My rule is I never say my own opinions because mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> the point of class is to have students understand mm-hmm. the questions as the authors or characters yeah. addressing. I don't want them confused by thinking, yeah, but what is he really? Mm-hmm. That's not relevant. I'm not the smartest of those people. Yeah. You don't need to come to college to learn me. Mm-hmm. You need to come to college to learn Tolstoy. So I never tell anyone because, oh, he's a believer. He's not a believer. It will affect how they hear it. And I don't want them to. I want them just to engage with the writer, not with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But So I never answer those questions. Mm. So what do you think that these authors think about the nature of enlightenment? Well, you know, the, the question of what sort of life you should live, what's moral and immoral, what's meaningful, nothing's going to be more important than that. And they and the characters treat it that way. And by the way, that's characteristic of Russian literature as a whole. It's not just so interesting, it's actually a little bit most famous. You know, Russian writers are always asking these questions right up to the present. Mm-hmm. Um, if they took a particular extreme form in the Soviet period, you know, since, you know, the, well, the Soviets invented the form of government we call totalitarianism, which <clears throat> created evil that had never been seen before. And so the question of good and evil became even more intense. And people could re-examine the questions that the authors of the previous century had asked with new experience to inform them. And that, that's, that's what a lot of 20th century writers do, mm-hmm. the best ones anyway. Mm-hmm. And since totalitarianism has you know, been not just in the Soviet Union, but you know, many countries, you know, <clears throat> at one point, dozens of countries, you know, in Eastern Europe and <clears throat> China and, and, and Cambodia, and today is still in North Korea, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's not, at one point in the 20th century, it was governed about 40% of humanity, it's just, you know, <clears throat> it took well over 100 million lives. Mm-hmm. So it's not a minor question how, you know, what produces this? What mindset leads to this? How do we avoid that mindset? That's, that's not so much a question of Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, but of Russian literature generally in the 20th century. Do you find, like, a sense of responsibility in trying to convey these big ideas that are very important for, like, the development of society to like college freshmen and college sophomores, especially? I think my, my main responsibility is to get people to think more acutely. People have a natural tendency to think what, what I think is right, what everybody else thinks is wrong, if they don't agree with me, what my group thinks is right, and I don't have to examine that because we're the good people. That produces very shallow thinking. It's natural because you all will be accepted by you know, but you don't really understand a question until you understand how people who don't agree with you with a different life experience see it. And that's what novels train people to do, because you're always identifying with someone from within who thinks or feels differently from you. And I'd like students to come out this never <clears throat> so if I said, okay, well you believe this, what's the best arguments against this position? They would have them at their fingertips. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't 
understand the other side of the case, you, you don't understand yours either. You're just mm-hmm. mouthing the words. You're comforting yourself with being a good person. But if you really cared about the issue, you would really find out about the issue. <clears throat> if you want to you know, find the best social reform, let's say mm-hmm. to eliminate poverty, you ex- try to find out, gee, has the ones I'm advocating been tried before, and how well have they worked? You mm-hmm. only get that from critics. You only get that from believers. Mm-hmm. So if you really care about, let's say, eliminating poverty, you won't just tolerate You look for those. Mm-hmm. And that's what I want people to be able to you know, in your personal life, you know, you won't get very far, let's say, with a friend or a spouse if your attitude is, how could she think that way? She must be evil or stupid because she doesn't think the way I do. Mm-hmm. Why not look from the other person's point of view and see how you appear to them? You see, that's, so it's a skill, a personal skill as well. And people have to learn. It's not, you know... A lot, it's not natural, and a lot in you know, society reinforces the more close-minded point of view. I feel like a big point in both of the novels mm-hmm. was the idea of remembering besides mm-hmm. forgetting and how that relates to um, like goodness versus <laughs> evil, and forgetfulness is equivalent to evil, and remembering is sort of equivalent to... Um, like goodness. And so do you think being conscious of that is important? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, if you've done something wrong, if you have an obligation to somebody that is, would not be pleasant to fulfill, how nice would it be if it never crossed your mind, if you forgot it? And people arrange to do that. And they can say, oh, I didn't mean anything bad, I just forgot. But that's precisely where the moral problem lies. You need to train yourself to remember, even if it would be unpleasant or inconvenient. Mm-hmm. You know, imagine a parent who kept forgetting, you know, their their kid picking up their kid from school from the doctor, and the kid had to wander the street. You'd see immediately what was wrong. And the parent saying, "Oh, I just forgot," doesn't cut it, and that's generally true. Mm-hmm. You need to train yourself to remember. That's a responsibility. And thinking that, you know, oh, I just forgot is an excuse. <clears throat> it isn't, you know. It may not have been your intention to forget, but it wasn't your intention to remember, and that's what your responsibility is. Mm. <clears throat> so do you think intentionally forgetting is worse, or just negligence <clears throat> that you didn't even know you should have remembered is worse? <clears throat> well, that depends on the situation. I mean, um, you just didn't know you should have remembered. Well, why didn't you know is the question. Should you have, could you have known? That just puts the question back one step. You know, instead of, well, you know, uh, should you remember if you come, should you have known? Well, maybe it was convenient not to know. Maybe, you know, you should have known, but you just decided to work on other things. You know, then the responsibility would still be there. It would, it's basically the same question, you know, forgetting neglect, a great deal of the evil of the world comes from those things, but they come with an excuse because, well, I didn't mean it. But you're responsible for things that you could and should have known about. You know, the law has this concept of criminal negligence, and that, that applies, that's, with a rough analogy, that applies to most moral decisions. Yeah, I feel like on top of like good and evil, something that a lot of students get out from your um, your lectures is 
like the the idea of love and what makes love what it truly is. Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't know how much time you have left. <coughs> but yeah, if you if you could like go just into have to monitor it. Mm, okay, yeah. if you could just go into what you think is love in comparison to what you know how society portrays it as what it should be. <coughs> Well, you know, this is not me again, but you know, if you want um, you know, Tolstoy, um, we tend to think of love as one sort of thing, and we usually think of it as grand romance as represented in, you know, romance and romantic movies. <clears throat> and if something doesn't look like that, well, it isn't really love. But that's, that is to accept a particular ideology as a fact. In fact, love can be many different things, and if you think it's only that, you can run into a lot of trouble. <clears throat> it's incompatible with a good marriage, for example. Um, it's incompatible with you know, day-to-day friendship. Um, and in fact, there are many different signs of love. And so, not buying the ideology that romance is love um, will make you a wiser person, a better person, and open more possibilities in life. That's part of what that novel is about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the myth that a romantic love that Tolstoy is talking about was very strong then, but it's probably even stronger now. That's one way you know, the novel is even more relevant, probably, than when it was written. But it was a pretty strong myth then, too. Do you find parallels back then and now, and, like, how much has changed and what really changed and what, like, has still stayed the same over time? Well, the most important things, you know, they stay the same, maybe it's you know, more pertinent now, maybe secondary now, but there are, you know, some questions that great literature addresses are pertinent everywhere. Um, or there wouldn't be great literature. It was just, you know, if it had no greater relevance than, well, <clears throat> you know, should we pass this next, you know, ref, you know, reform of the labor laws, let's say, in Dickens' time, well, once that reform passed, if that's all the book was about, who would need to read it? It wouldn't be a great literature. Great literature is great because it's not restricted to the time and place of ages. Because although it may address a contemporary question, it addresses it from a perspective which would be relevant in quite other circumstances. The fundamental issues are still there. I can't think of a society where you know the nature of love would not be a pertinent question. Or um where does one get one's morals from? And how does one know they're correct? It's hard to imagine a society where people would not be thinking about that. Mm-hmm. You know, the great writers of you know, all countries are, are addressing questions like that. You know, um, and, you know if, they're, if they're read across the world and you know, <clears throat> across centuries, and probably, it's probably because they're not limited to their time and place. That's one of the reasons why you know, those tests, do they travel? Um, in time and space, um, <clears throat> are relevant. It, it, you know, a contemporary American novel could, ter- could turn out to be truly great from that standard, but we don't know because we haven't. Tr- it hasn't gone to other countries or other times. Right? Um, but you know, when you're dealing with, let's say, you know, or Shakespeare or Dostoevsky, well, it's past that test, right? And, Isn't the Bible <clears throat> also sort of like that? Sure, the Bible in particular, right? Narrative. You know, think of. How many people, you know, it's influenced for how long, you know. Um, and, it, and it's a, co- you know, it's, it's a collection of 
many different books which people put together. You know, it, you know, it, it, I think the word Bible is using the plural meaning books. Um, it's many books, uh, you know, put together. You know, the, the Old Testament, the wisdom of the Hebrews over a millennium, sort of there. You know, with different. So that's why the books don't always cohere. They don't always. They're not always saying the same thing. But they're the greatest wisdom of the ancient world from different perspectives, very often not you know, consistent. But that's why it's so wonderful, because you can get very many different perspectives out of it. It's, you know, the compendium, the great anthology of the wisdom of antiquity. Many of these books, you know, are, they've had versions from, you know, other countries, like, you know, the book of Proverbs draws heavily on famous Egyptian Proverbs at the time. Wisdom that comes from around the world. That makes it so, you know, quite, quite pertinent. Again, I think it would be hard to think of a culture that could not benefit from, you know, reading it. Um, it's certainly been the book that has most influenced, um, you know, um, the Western world since it was <coughs> written. You know, in America, you know, even 50 years ago, you could just count upon, if you quoted something from it, everybody would know it, right? And, you know, things like the speeches of Martin Luther King, you know, rely on concealed or overt quotations. It's just assumptions that everybody will know Abraham Lincoln speaking. We've lost a lot of that with the idea that, oh, since people don't believe in God anymore, they don't believe the Bible. But the Bible it contains enormous wisdom whether you believe in God or not. And it also is the... To the the book that everything in Western culture alludes to, so you need to know it the same way you need to know the alphabet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I imagine you were, you know, I'm sure if you were studying um, the contemporary Middle East, and saying you didn't believe in God would not be a good reason for neglecting the Korah. It's shaped the civilization. How can you neglect it and understand it? Yeah. I feel like, personally, I see the Bible as well i'm from like sort of a christian background mm -hmm. my father's a pastor and personally right now mm -hmm. i am not religious in that sense but it's because i feel like i've been understanding the bible in a wrong manner and i guess it's sort of like in the new testament when jesus came and everyone was like you can't possibly be like the messiah that we've been looking for i feel like a lot of times people will just follow the Bible according to its like overt laws and regulations and they make that into something that you can't like that wasn't meant for the original the the original intention of those laws that were made. You forget that and you just focus solely on the laws. And that's sort of how I felt. Because like I grew up and I was like I didn't even question it. I was just okay, this is what I'm my life is going to be like. And when I start to question, I was like, there might be more that I'm missing because I'm just focusing on the the specifics of it. And when I sort of start to like live and experience for myself, it started to become somewhat of a like an experience where I start to understand the biblical teachings in a way I never did before because it just came out to me in a way that, oh, wait, I realize this person is, no, this, the Bible is saying something that I know, but I just haven't lived it 
So like once I live it, then I'm like, wait, this is what it's saying. And this is why it's important. And I think a lot of people are striving for that, that experience when you can truly experience what the Bible is saying, instead of just looking at the words on the page. Yeah. You, you describe an experience that a lot of people have had. You know, when you teach the Bible to kids, you can't teach profound philosophy. They won't get it. Um, so you teach very simple stories. They're actually much more complex. But give them an introduction. You don't, you can't give all the moral complexity of it. So you give them a series of simple ones. And that's an introduction. <clears throat> the problem is if you never get beyond that. But, you know, just like you start reading great literature with simple stories, and you don't, you don't get it. As wise as you want to be, the Bible has something to tell you to keep going back to. I certainly still learn from it. Um, ah, so that's the point there. That's, you know, that's the moral situation they have in mind here. I didn't see that. You know, that that'll be true of great, but, but, you know, if you figure that the Bible is, you know, <clears throat> the wisdom of the wisest people in the world over a thousand years, if you find something too simple there, it's probably you. Yeah? <laughs> or the way you've been taught it. And so, very often, you know, it's the sort of Sunday school approach, which we have to make it simple for kids. Um, or adults. Or adults. Adults don't want to learn any more than that. They just want to cling to something. Um, but you can go, it, it, this is as much depth there as you need if you want to get it. You can start to stay with the simple stuff, or you can, you know, go more deeply. Right? Yeah, I think it's very similar to when I was reading the books, The Brothers Karamazov mm-hmm. and um, Anna Karenina. I started to find like myself in the characters. And when I had that moment, I was like, wait, this, this character is going through the exact same thing that I am going through. Then I was like, wait, so I understand this in a different way than just reading like the, like the words on the page. And that's similar to what the Bible can do. But I feel like the Bible is really deep in that sense. And you can really go into it or just read the surface level and really gain nothing from it. And any level of depth too. You know, what you describe with, um, experience in reading. Go back and read Anna Karenina, you know, when you're in your thirties. It will be a completely different book to you because you will have lived through, you know, a lot of the experiences. So you know, a lot of novels are about really young people your age. But you know, Anna is not, is not she's ten years, ten, twelve years older than you, right? And um, there's a lot that happens in those times, you know, about family and parenting and love that will make it look different to you once you've had that experience. Um, and that's, that's true, the really great novels. We read them every 10 years. And you can't believe what you missed the previous time. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely going to be true with you know, the, you know, the great biblical books. And, you know, um, yeah, I found some of them more <laughs> worth reading than others. Um, you know, some of the books I, I read, and I, there are passages I find profound. There's a lot of them that escapes me. Um, and some of them, you know, riveted from first word to the last. Yeah. yeah, I feel like it depends on where your headspace is at the time. Yeah. And if you're thinking about one particular thing, Tolstoy, for me, has revealed it in a way that's so much simpler than all the vagueness that's in my head. Mm-hmm. Like, I had a bunch of vagueness, and then he wrote, like, one or two lines, and I was like, wait, that's what I, that explains in such concise terms what I've been thinking in my head. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. You have a vaguely 
and Tolstoy pins it down. And that's, I think that's true because that's why people suddenly, oh, they can recognize the truth of it. Which means there must have been something in their head beforehand to recognize the seeing again, you know, recognize, see again. You must have had something there to be able to recognize it. You know, so you had something vague and inchoate, it showed it to you. So it's, that's how you know it speaks to you, that's how you know it's true, not just sort of written down, right? You've had some experience that would verify it. Yeah, and I think the issue with people who think too much is in the case of like Ivan Brothers Karamazov, mm -hmm. is you're going in the completely opposite direction of what you should be doing because thinking isn't feeling, it's not action, it's not experiences, it's just your head trying to decipher something. But if you truly experience it, and that then it'll approach you at such a stronger rate. And I think that's the whole concept of faith is that like you trust that um, your your thoughts aren't necessarily going to make sense all the time, but it's your experiences that you trust and the recognition and... Yeah, that's, that's true, but it's best if those experiences are thought about. Mm -hmm. Not just trust abstract things. So yeah. Trust experiences. <clears throat> then you have to, to understand anything, you have to think about it. But not mm -hmm. from you know, the abstraction down. Mm -hmm. But... Really grasp the experience mm -hmm. and think about it from within that experience, yeah. but, um, which is how you read great novels. I feel like you go from sort of an abstraction and then you think about it, and then once you realize what it is, like mm -hmm. Levin at the very end of Anna Karina, he realizes it's action, not thinking, it's living, not thinking, that is the ultimate right. like right. spiritual enlightenment. And so you go from that abstraction, that like vague. Mm -hmm state you go to thinking and it clarifies for you and then if you keep in that thinking state you'll end up probably like Ivan where you're just overthinking things and you don't make like logical sense of anything but if you mm -hmm. think and then you trust yourself then you can live without thinking and that whole doctrine in your life but you have to live live rightly just living won't do it exactly exactly yeah. I feel like that's right. <clears throat> I bet your your father maybe went through similar experiences too mm -hmm. to wind up where he is, right? Yeah, as a pastor, I feel. He might have you know, gone through the same thing. Mm -hmm. I think he read The Stranger by Camus at some point, and he said it impacted him a lot. Yeah. But I feel like, I don't know, I feel like a lot of people are on this journey to of thinking the right way and not like, like Sliva went the completely mm -hmm. wrong way, right. and that was the issue with him. But Levin, he like constantly struggled, and then at the end, he had the right conclusion, and that was what made it all the difference. So, yeah. <coughs> you have time. We should, we should wind up, but okay, um, yeah. uh, this has been a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. uh, come back and talk to me again. Yeah. You're a great person to talk to. And I'm sure you have a great podcast. Um, yeah, I'm so sad that it's only been, like, like my other podcast was like an hour long, and I still felt like there w was more things that we could talk about. Well, yeah, maybe we wanted to do another one. Yeah, okay. exactly. Okay. So, I'm yeah. always so jammed with this. Mm -hmm. but come, 
That's the end of the winter. We'll find another time. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Sounds good. So we're about to leave, and then we'll see what Yeah. So I'll just like make the concluding statements. And so um, this has been Hank Gang and Professor Morrison from the Northwestern People Podcast, and we'll see you again in the next.